You can most successfully engage people if you first regulate yourself, make sure that you're regulated, and that that's because human beings are contagious. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Hello, friend. Welcome to another... No, no. Actually, it's not another episode... Welcome to the 100th episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. I cannot believe that we've reached 100 episodes. I think back to, was it 2019 when I released the first episode in December of this podcast. I had taken one year, I had recorded the first episode a year before that, so in December 2018. And it took me one year to publish the episode because I couldn't stand hearing myself on the mic. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I putting out an episode? I have this French accent. I, you know, don't like my voice, don't like hearing it. Um, I, I wouldn't even be able to say a sentence without recording it a million times. It just made me so anxious to put that first episode out. So it took me a year. Um, and thinking back now where, you know, for a couple years later, well, it's four seasons, but a couple years later, and I'm recording episodes in one shot and doing solos that are unedited and just putting it out there so that I can have content for you guys and I can have these conversations with people for you so that we can improve the way that we're parenting all together. Um, what a difference <laughs> this time has made and a hundred episodes. You know, I was telling my husband, um, Anthony, you know, I'm hitting a hundred episodes um, in January and he was like, do you realize how many hours you've put into this podcast? I remember after I had given birth my third son that I was recording and then I was editing all the episodes on my own. It was taking about 15 hours of my week to plan out the episodes and find people to to interview, prepare the interviews. At that point, I was taking a lot of time to prepare for the interviews as well. And then doing all the editing myself um, I was nursing every two hours at that point. I had a newborn and I was just running to the crib and to this, this, um, my newborn's room, nursing him, running back down in the middle of the night, rec- you know, editing until like two o'clock in the morning. And I can't believe that I've hit a hundred episodes. I didn't think it was going to last this long. Not that I, I don't know why. I just, I always assume that everything will. <laughs> will fail and bomb at the beginning. Um, but it's doing well and I'm happy with where it's going and it's it, it went. I'm happy with the conversations that I've had so far with the people um, and that I've interviewed with the people that are involved right now with the podcast and have been involved. So thank you to Marion. Thank you to Claudia and Sadie. Thank you for the amount of hours that you put into Kirsteron to edit the videos and edit them, the audio, and to talk to people about it and get it out there. Um, you know, I'm so grateful for the support that we have from the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal. 
um, they support it. And because of them, I can get somebody to help me edit. And it takes a lot less time for me, but we get a lot more content out there and a lot more, um, a lot better quality as well. So I'm so grateful for everybody who's part of this very small team, but very meaningful team to me. Um, with everything that I do, the podcast is something that there's a really, uh, there's a place for it in my heart because I get to touch lots of people's lives by having these conversations and I get to have conversations with people because during the pandemic, I mean, I was in my basement. I, I still am. It's it's 10.30 at night right now <laughs> and it's a Thursday night and I'm home recording this episode. I am just grateful for every single episode that I get to put out there and every single person that listens. Thanks to you and thank you to those of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast. If you do want to hear season four, I, I um, remind you to please leave a, a rating and review, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify. I'm not sure if you can on Amazon Music, but wherever you can, or send me an email, say hi. Um, I'll, I will put a link in the show notes for a Google form that you can fill out if there's a topic that you want me to cover. I want this to be all of us coming together and trying to find answers to our questions, especially when it comes around parenting and emotional development. That is all I have to say. So thank you to everyone. Today is not just the 100th episode. It is the biggest interview that I have ever had here at the Curious Neuron podcast and for Curious Neuron and in my life. I cannot believe the guest that I'm about to introduce and the conversation that I had with him. Um, Dr. Bruce Perry is today's guest for the 100th episode if you are one of the very few people that don't know about Dr. Bruce Perry or whose life hasn't been altered or changed by his books, one being What Happened to You and the second one being The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, his work is important for so many people, whether you work with children, whether you have children, or even just for yourself, whether you are a clinician, an educator, anyone, to help us understand the brain and how it is affected by our early childhood, his work is just some of the most important work that I've seen. He is the principal of the Neurosequential Network and a professor uh, in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. He has been working for the past 30 years as a teacher, clinician, researcher in children's mental health and neurosciences and holds a variety of academic positions. We've waited long enough. It's a long interview, so you might want to break this down and listen to some parts of it, uh, you know, piece by piece. I could not break it into two parts. It's just so good. I don't want to, you know, cut anything. Um, so the full interview is there. You can also watch it on YouTube if you want. Um, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry. And thank you to Claudia for joining me on this conversation. She is part of the Curious Neuron podcast team and was the reason why he ended up joining me uh, at the podcast. I cannot take any credit. She was awesome. And uh, thank you. <laughs> I will see you on the other side. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for joining me today at the Curious Neuron podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Claudia and I are beyond uh, excited to have this conversation with you. And so are the parents that knew that I was talking with you today. Um, I have read your book, What Happened to You? And I personally think, having worked with parents now for a few years, I know that it would help them so much to understand really the biological organization of their child's brain. Because a lot of parents will reach out and say, you know, I told my child to calm down when they were screaming or crying and it didn't work. <laughs> Or right. why is my child behaving this way? Uh, you know, what can I do to help them? Or why do they scream? I yell at them. They yell at me. What's wrong? Why can't we stop this cycle? And I think a lot of that 
touches on the work that you do. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? You've explained it so beautifully in your books, this bottom up approach and how, right. you know, we can't get to the cortex without regulating. Can you explain that aspect of your work, please? Sure. So uh, as you know very well, one of the major challenges of talking to anybody about the the brain and human behavior is that it's complicated, right? You know, it's, there are lots of things that can influence the way people think and the way people feel. And we've always taken the perspective that if you know a few basics about the human brain, certain things just make more sense. And And one of the key concepts that we try to teach is that Uh, the brain is organized in this hierarchical way where that very top part of our brain, and most people have heard of the term cortex, that, that's the part of your brain that has systems in it that allow us to speak. There are neural networks that are involved in uh, reflecting on the past and anticipating the future. And when you teach your kids about right and wrong, the part of the brain you're trying to change is the cortex. And when you teach your kids language, when you teach them math, history, almost any of the traditional uh, topics in education are going to involve the, that top part of your brain. And now this part of the brain is a really, it's, it's a very special part of the human body because it's the most uniquely human part of our whole body. You know, we have, uh, you know, human beings have a heart and they have a lung and they have pancreas and bones and muscle and everybody kind of knows that. But the the DNA that, that codes for all of those uh, systems is very similar to the DNA from other mammals. So we're, we're kind of, you know, cow-like when it comes to muscles and bones and we're monkey-like and we're, we're, we're not that much advanced from rats when you look at some of our organs. But if you look at the brain, that particularly the top part of our brain, that's the most uniquely human part of us. And it's really what allows us to, to be the unique individuals that we are. That's, that's a really important part of us. Now, the dilemma is yeah. that part of our brain develops very slowly. It's not fully developed until you're probably in your late 20s. Uh, when you're very young, that part of your brain that allows you to be most uh, thoughtful and rational and regulated, that, that part of your brain, as any parent can tell you, that's undeveloped. Hmm. You know, it's there, but it's not really as efficient as an adult brain. So um, that's one issue with communicating with kids and understanding children, actually understanding anybody. The second is that the way your brain organizes is, in, in a, and this is very inaccurate, I'm sure that all the neuroscientists who hear this are just going to cringe, but if you think of the brain a little bit like a, a layer cake, there are lower parts of the brain that mediate very regulatory things, heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature and stuff like that. And they're, those are important. But as you get higher in the brain, you know, higher in this layer cake, more complex functions are mediated by systems that are in those areas. And then finally, you get to this really the top part of your brain that is the, the, the most uniquely human part of our brain. That when you talk to your kids, that's what you're trying to reach is that top part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So 
because of this layer cake, you know, this development developmental process that is bottom up, you, you, the brain develops from the bottom to the top. We also have a matching processing of sensory input from the bottom to the top. So every time you hear, see, smell, touch anything, it doesn't go directly to your cortex. It doesn't go to that smart part of your brain. It goes to lower parts of your brain that are much more regulatory. They they process and act on information in a very different way than that most uniquely human part of the brain processes and acts on information. So the trick uh, in talking with a child is that your words are going to be turned into pattern neuronal activity that start in the lowest part of the child's brain. That's a very reactive part of the brain. And then it goes up through this kind of middle part of the brain where, where it's a little bit more of an emotional part of your brain. And then it will ultimately get to that rational reasoning part of the brain. And that's a sequence. So it, it we can't expect that sequence to go perfectly well, particularly if a child is frustrated, hungry, thirsty, cold, uh, upset, because the lower parts of the brain start to send, if you will, disorganizing input to higher parts of the brain when you get hungry, thirsty, cold, and everything else like that. And I think any you know any parent listening knows that the hardest time of the day is like <laughs> you know towards four, four five, PM. six o'clock, yeah. right? <laughs> Everybody's coming back from school or work, mm-hmm. and you're not, and you're hungry, and you've been holding it together at work all day. They've been holding it together at school, and you get back together and. The wise parent knows, all right, I need to feed uh, my (laughs) child. I need to regulate myself. I need to calm down. Let's get them fed. Let's get them regulated in some other way. Maybe it's do your sport, run around, do a little video game, kind of regulate yourself that way. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about homework. Mm -hmm. But if the first question is, where is your homework? And, and, you know, it, it just blows up. It's a mess. It's not setting your child up for success that evening. <laughs> it's just exactly, not, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so th- this whole sequential processing of information leads to a very simple mantra about what we call the sequence of engagement. You can most successfully engage people if you first regulate yourself, make sure that you're regulated, and that that's because human beings are contagious. Mm. And so if you are frazzled, you're going to dysregulate your child or your partner or whoever you're supervising or whatever. So you need to sort of take a deep breath and to the degree that you can regulate yourself and then engage the child or engage whoever it is. Recognizing that what you say and the way you are with that child Mm -hmm. is first going to go through this very primitive reactive part of their brain and then the emotional part of their brain and finally to the part of their brain that can reason. So you have to recognize that if you're regulated, you can then help regulate your child, and then you can relate, you can connect with them, and then if that's in place, then they can hear accurately what you're saying. Mm. But if you don't regulate them and you say, where's your homework? You'll hear stuff like, 
don't yell at me. Your eyes critical. Da, 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 da. And you're like, I, I didn't yell. And they're like, you're yelling. No, I'm yelling. And it, it, pretty soon you, you co-dysregulate each other. Exactly. And every yeah. parent has, has had that happen. And everybody in a relationship's had that happen. Mm-hmm. And as you and as you have that sort of that dysregulating interaction, you start to get dumber and more emotional <laughs> and more reactive. And you say things that you don't really mean. And and you then you have to have this cooling off part and you have to kind of reconnect and 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 that's the interesting thing about human. This is one of the most important things that we try to help people appreciate is that human communication is as much about repair of rupture as it is about this, you know, continuous cortex to cortex connection. Because that's not the, you know, we don't telepathically communicate with precision and accuracy what's in our cortex. Mm. Think about the people you love most in your life. How often do you say, that's not what I meant. Let me say it again. Let me clarify it. Blah, 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 blah. And so, I, I, I again, I think that that's one of the hardest parts about parenting is r- reminding and helping parents appreciate that, listen, there are these unavoidable neurobiological principles that you cannot fight. If you don't respect the sequence of engagement, you will not successfully get what's in your cortex into your child's cortex. This is why I wish, you know, I, I think back to my own prenatal classes and they taught you how to hold the baby and they taught you how to feed the baby and what to do at night, but they never told us this. And if only, you know, for myself, I had three young kids. And it was only by the time I had the third that I realized I needed to work on myself and, and you know, yeah. things were difficult and, you know, you have three very small kids under the age of four and you're like, what am I doing? You're like, how I, I'm lost. But I hadn't realized that my own system needed some help and that I came from exactly. a childhood that was a little bit more troubled and, you know, struggled with my parents' divorce and all that. And by going back to that, I learned how to regulate myself. And that, that changed everything in the way that I was parenting. With all the work and the research you've done and all the conversations you've had around this, is this something you also wish, like, as a society that we kind of break this cycle? Because, I mean, I keep hearing parents saying, I want to stop yelling, but I can't. But right. then the work isn't being done. So how do we, like, stop this cycle from happening? You know, Cindy, that's a... First of all, there's a lot of really good and important observations in, in that. Um and and i i really wish that we would recognize how important it is for success in every aspect of life mm-hmm. to know a little bit about how the brain works oh, yeah. yeah i agree and how it develops mm-hmm. i mean we we'd be better police officers teachers mm-hmm. we'd be better partners parents everything would be easier if we knew more about this yeah. and you know most of us learn these things by accident Right. Like you said, you had three kids. And by the time you had your third, you're like, you figured out that, hey, it doesn't work if I'm not regulated. Right. If mm-hmm. I'm if I'm hungry, thirsty, cold, upset, mm-hmm. frazzled, I can't communicate effectively with anybody in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, first of all, I think one of the things that, that's important about what you're doing and part of what our organization is trying to do, we're trying to back these concepts into mm-hmm. public education. Yeah. We we want we think these things are as important as learning the quadratic equation, mm-hmm. or or learning other things that we intentionally teach 
in a systematic way to everybody. And I think if people learned a little bit about what we refer to as state-dependent functioning, you know, just the recognition that when people are distressed or stressed, they're going to have a harder time with learning new concepts and with retrieving concepts that they've learned, right? Mm -hmm. So people can learn all kinds of stuff, but if you stress them, they're not going to easily retrieve that and act on it. Mm-hmm. So that that would be that that fundamental body of knowledge is really helpful in figuring out how to set up a classroom where kids can effectively learn, for example, or testing circumstances where children can perform better and really show you what they know. Because a lot of kids get really anxious about being tested and they've learned the concepts. And, And literally if they went with the teacher and they walked down the hallway and the teacher asked the questions, the (laughs) child would be able to answer everyone with a hundred percent. But if they're forced to sit down in a classroom and not move and retrieve it under a time pressure, they can't write down the answers. It's turning probably. off their cortex, basically. <laughs> exactly, Claudia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so if we've been trying to back some of these concepts into uh, public education in a way that it will help people in whatever uh, whatever they do, but I, you know, I, I, Cindy, I was lucky that I was a parent before I became a clinician. So I uh, had children when I was in in medical school, and then I went and got my PhD, and then I came back and finished medical school and went on to do my training. So by the time I was kind of getting clinical training in how to be with kids, I knew that a lot of that was just bullshit. I mean, excuse my language. I'm like, but wait, that's not, yeah, that's not the way kids act. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I have kids. That's that's not what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fortunate that I knew some of these things. I didn't have all the language, but I'd been studying the stress response systems in uh, animal models and their development as a scientist. And then I had children. And so over time, I kind of realized that what I was learning in the lab had relevance for the way I was parenting (laughs) and for what I was seeing, you know, and it helped me with one of my kids at sleep issues and one of my kids at regulation issues. And one of my kids was like, perfect. We thought we were perfect parents. So that's the, that's the irony, right? Our first child had (laughs) was like, you know, I'd say stuff like, don't do that. And he'd go, okay. And then he wouldn't do it. I'm like, wow, I'm a great parent. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this yet. (laughs) And then our second child was like, what the hell? You know, she didn't like, she was, she was very dysregulated. And and so she taught me more about all of this stuff than anything Mm -hmm. else. And the key I think is that many parents uh, are going to have children that have different constitutional gifts, right? Some kids are tolerate a lot of sensory complexity. Some kids don't. And, and the way you parent one child isn't necessarily going to work with another child. And, and I think, um, we don't teach parents that very much. We kind of have this idea that there is a parenting, you know, somebody out there really knows a lot, knows a lot about parenting. We don't. And sorry. <laughs> or a playbook somewhere. Exactly. That, exists, that we can just follow and everything will be fine. Right. Well, and that yeah. and the funny thing is that there are people that exploit that. And mm-hmm. you know, you go into any bookstore, there's there's whole aisles filled with how to parent. And it re- that more than anything illustrates to me what a bad job we do 
at teaching people how to parent, yeah. right? We, we just don't do a very good job with it. I mean, a lot of people feel unsure of themselves. People, they get doctorates in, you know, we're supposed to know all. I know people that have doctorates in child development, and then they become parents are like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell to do. Same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so. true. And, you know, I think parents are looking for some sort of resource. And this is why parenting platforms, you know, do well. But I think that if we can just share the research and a parent has to learn how to be attuned and understand their child before anything else, um, that will help them. Because like you said, every single child is so different. And then even yeah. more importantly is working on yourself. If we don't think back to our own childhood and upbringing, and if we don't understand why we're reacting certain ways, you know, with our child, then we'll never parent the way that we want to. It doesn't matter what the books say. It doesn't matter if you right. should have a timeout or not. It, like, the, all these are really big and important conversations still happening in the parenting world. And it was interesting for me to come out of neuroscience and end up in this parenting world because I, I, I you know, I didn't know what all these myths that were going around or these misconceptions about parenting or all people pushing certain models that there's no backup to these types of parenting yeah, but in exactly. the end you know if you look at the research they talk about being sensitive to your child's needs and and like nurturing them and and you know and this is what i'm trying to push out there yeah yeah um, and i hmm. you know i parenting is such an interesting thing because when you when you start to look at the western version of parenting hmm. we we take uh, a couple and actually in the u.s and other places there's a lot of single parents yeah. that are given this huge body of responsibility mm -hmm. to, to meet the emotional, the social, the motor, the cognitive, and, and the material needs of multiple kids with multiple strengths and gifts themselves mm -hmm. all at once. And, and that's a demand that is fundamentally biologically disrespectful. Yeah, And I, I keep pointing out to people that, listen, we human beings are we're animals. I mean, we, we we're neuro we we we're organized physiologically for a different world than we've created, and the world that our biology is suited for was a multifamily, um, you know, relatively small but very relationally close community, mm -hmm. uh, you know, multi generational multifamily groups. And in those groups, there was alloparenting. There were multiple people who were involved in modeling for ch children, in teaching children, in disciplining children, in re rewarding children. Mm -hmm. And so the, the ratio of developmentally mature individual that could play a role in that alloparenting process was four to one. Mm -hmm. And so we now have a world, the Western world, where we're all compartmentalized, and we are sometimes, like I said, having one parent and multiple young kids that they're supposed to be responsible for. And it's a demand that's unrealistic. It, it wears out the parent. And because of the contagion of human beings, if the dominant person in the caregiving environment is overwhelmed and exhausted and disconnected, that's just going to have negative impact on the developing child. So we really have to think differently about the way we are providing relational connectedness for our parents so that they can then be their best for the children that they're raising. And then also how, how do we in a mobile society that's, that's 
parsed out the way we are parsed out. Everybody mm-hmm. has their own little home, their own little room, mm-hmm. and you live 200 miles away from your parents. And mm-hmm. and how do we create a family of choice, right? Mm-hmm. Can we engage the retired couple down the hall to, to be part of our you know little child's life? Can we um, find a community of you know, whether it's a community of faith or a community of activity or something where our kids can be around other people. Because what, what would happen in a, in a, in sort of a, a relationally rich hunter gatherer clan is that the child would basically, in many ways, guide their own development based upon their needs. So they, if they were developing motor skills faster than, same age peers, there were lots of places for them to do that. They would just move to a different group of of people in the community to practice the motor skill at at and and your development wasn't was not determined by your age. Yeah. It was determined by your developmental capabilities and interests. And so and in that group, there were people who were good with motor skills. There were people that were good with uh, large motor skills. There were people that were good being funny. There were people good storytellers, but not everybody had to be all of that, mm. right? Now, if you're a single parent, you're supposed to be good at throwing the ball, good at teaching somebody how to knit, good at showing art, good at nurturing, and then oh, by the way, you you have to also discipline them, and so that is that creates this impossible ask on a on a single parent, and uh, I think it's just overwhelming for. For a lot of people. I find also there's some like stigma in society where you have a single parent who's trying to lean on their parents. So the children's grandparents, yeah. and they're trying to have some time for themselves. They're trying to better themselves. And then, you know, the society's like, no, 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 you can't lean on your parents. You have to be, you have to be working by yourself and doing this properly or you're not adequate. And I think that's mm. such yeah. a problem. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Claudia. I think the stigma of there's two parts of that. One is that even if you're not sort of leaning on ex, you know, your family, there's this weird um, guilt feeling that people are given if you're a parent, if you go to your book club and you go work mm-hmm. out and you do mm-hmm. the things that keep you healthy, then you're somehow viewed as not uh, being present in parenting. Yeah. But if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to to be a present parent in a good way. So I think that that first of all we have to get better at allowing people to do that, and that's a that's a pervasive problem mm-hmm. throughout our field, you know, education, yeah. mental health, and all. But then the other part is I, I think you're absolutely right that there's this weird um, and unfair just perspective about parenting that it, it's not recognizing the importance of allo parenting or mm-hmm. the importance of engaging others and relying on others to help you parent. Um, and and the, the truth is nobody can do this well by themselves. It's just very, very hard. Um, I mean, even when you have a partner and resources and pretty healthy kids, it's really hard to parent. This just puts a, a light on like the difficulties of being a, uh, a parent in a, you know, in a socioeconomic environment that's not very adequate, you know, being under poverty line, how are you supposed to parent? How are you supposed to take care of yourself when you're, you know, working three jobs or have three kids that all have different health issues? Like, how is it possible to be a good parent in this situation? Yeah. 
Well, we we actually um, we've developed a measure to look at the. It's called the caregiving challenge uh, tool, and it's it, it, basically what it is is a very simple tool that we have a few items where we look at what are the internal resources of the parent. You know, do they have good mental health? Do they have an education? Are they physically healthy? Uh, are they in good relationships? And then what are the external resources? Are they in connected to extent, extended family, um, community? Do they have friends and other people that participate? So we kind of look at that. And then we balance that against the demands of the children, right? So the age of the child, the special needs of the child, the number of children. And what we find by and large is if you are, even if you have a partner and you have all of these internal resources and all of the availability of the external resources, and then you have three kids that are of average three kids, that the typical parent is essentially out of balance in terms of having enough reserve for their own health, uh, welfare, and growth. So at baseline, the healthy Western family with a partner in the family, living in the family, helping with economic supports and everything else still is going to lead to exhausted, burned out, overwhelmed parent who who is the, pro- the prim- primary parent taking care of the kids. Um, wow. And if you, and then when you add in, if you then do, Claudia, what you're saying, that mm-hmm. if you say, all right, I have a child who's got special needs. <laughs> Uh, I've got a child who's delayed because I was exhausted, or I, I have a little trouble with substance abuse. I have no connection to external family. I have no friends. When you start to look at a lot of these families that we work with and and see what few reserves they have, you you the numbers we get are just shocking. I mean, it, it is so absolutely predictable that they're going to burn out and that they're going to feel inadequate and overwhelmed, and they're going to manage that by usually maladaptive things mm-hmm. you know they're they're going to blunt their pain with with uh s- substance use mm-hmm. they're going to choose to um you know they they get more frustrated more frequently and so forth and the, the, for for me one of the things that's so frustrating is that we we get this data and then we show this to our child protective community and they'll see a mother who's got five or six kids that are out of home all of them are kind of struggling. They're all being managed in different settings with lots of resources. And then the mother is stopped using and she's starting to get her stuff back together and it's got a little place to live. And then the decision is let's reunify. And they put all those kids back in the house at the same time without any external supports. Mm. And it's a hundred percent predictable that it's going to fail. And we show them this time and time and time again. Finally, the systems we were working with that we did this tool with, they said, we don't want you to measure that anymore. Because once you measure it, it just shows how inadequate we are. They just, um, they said we would rather not know. That's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But and, And this is one of the questions I think both Claudia and I had for you is given the amount of the number of years and the amount of research that you've put out there and and all the talks that you've given the books you've put out 
why isn't our system changing, <laughs> right? Like I'm thinking about the education yeah. system. I'm thinking about even our local healthcare system, our local, um, you know, child protective services. Nobody is following the system when the research is clear in, in our minds. Why yeah. aren't we, why don't we have a trauma-informed healthcare system with our kids? Why are we still just labeling and, and giving this, like looking at symptoms, why yeah. hasn't this changed yet? What are I, I could imagine the frustration on your end? Um, what are these barriers? First of all, I, let me just say, I you guys are young, <laughs> you know, and um, and I was once young, and and so it to me, I have seen change. Okay, now it's slow, but I have seen change. I mean, when I literally. You know, now you can't go anywhere online or any academic meeting or any any professional body where there isn't some conversation about equity, about about um, mm. there's conversations about trauma, there are conversations mm. about now there's finally they're starting to talk about positive experiences as well mm -hmm. as negative experiences. So what happens is uh, systems just are harder to change. Mm -hmm. Let me just back up a second. So if you learn a little bit about biology, you, you and, and this is where the science is really helpful. When you learn about the, the physiology of any dynamic system in the human body or any or living system, when the system gets to a certain equilibrium, there are a whole bunch of mechanisms that resist change, mm -hmm. right? So when you get stressed, there are systems that put you back in balance, right? Those are our stress response capabilities. And most systems have a very powerful set of uh, processes that keep things the same. Now, big systems, even though you don't, we don't think about them this way, they, they're like biological organisms. Big sort of bureaucratic systems mm -hmm. are literally like uh, big organisms. Mm -hmm. And they have lots of ways to maintain equilibrium for the system, which means if you have a hierarchical system that is a carry forward of a colonizing uh, dominance-based, power-based system. Mm -hmm. It has all kinds of things that will keep power at the top. Mm -hmm. And even when there's pressure from the mm -hmm. outside to change or internally to change, there are all kinds of mechanisms that make people feel that diffuse the energy. Mm -hmm. So uh, big systems, when they finally realize they have to focus on that trauma is a real thing, they'll do some crazy bullshit like, oh, we're going to have a trauma-informed uh, in-service. And then they check the box mm -hmm. and then they'll they'll get away for the next 10 years. They'll get away with saying, well, we're trauma-informed. Or then they'll then they, the people will go, that's not enough. It's not enough to have an equity in-service. You really have to hire some people of color to be in positions of leadership. So then they'll pick one person to be on their board. And so they have all these incremental ways to diffuse external energy and external uh, agents of change because they neutralize them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're always intending to maintain their power. And they're very successful at it. And all organizations that do it both consciously and unconsciously. 
and people don't recognize it. You know, well, some of the most common ways to maintain power are, and academics is a perfect example of this. Academics does this all the time. They'll have a consensus panel and they'll pull people together and they'll get the usual suspects and they might invite, invite a few people that are kind of representative of the groups that they're trying to represent or change or or be kowtow to or whatever they're trying to do. Um, and for that period of time, that neutralizes. It's true. And, mm -hmm. and, and after a while, people figure out, well, that didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed. You know, and the same thing happens. Like we We passed civil rights laws you know, 50 plus years ago, but we still have issues around equity, racism, and so forth. And so people are finally recognizing, hey, wait a minute, you know, we passed this civil rights or the voting act, right? You know, voting rights laws and all these things. And 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 for a while, government checked the box and said, what are you saying? We're not racist. <laughs> mm -hmm. True. And then people wake up and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, you are racist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they get angry and then they go, oh, you know what? Maybe we won't do advertising with this company that does bad stuff or we'll do that. And then people go, Oh yeah. Okay. So the outrage is diffused and it takes a while to build up again in all big systems, whatever the topic is, whether it's trauma or learn about attachment or, or, or uh, misogyny or the me too thing, mm -hmm. the, the bullshit that gets tolerated in these mm -hmm. systems to maintain power is outrageous. Mm -hmm. You know, you see, look at Jeff Epstein. You know, like there's examples of it all around. Yeah. And and I think part of what people need to recognize is that as long as our systems are just explicit and overt manifestations of traditional colonial um, systems, you know, structure, we won't be able to solve that problem. Yeah. We have, we literally, I, I don't want to say blow things up, but if we could reorganize things from the bottom up, it would be a lot easier than taking the existing yeah. system and trying to reorganize it the way we want it. And that's part of the problem. Now, fortunately, in the US, for example, there are a number of places that are working on reorganizing the child welfare system. Hmm. And of course, what will happen is this is going to be a 10-year process yeah. where they've already convened and they, expl they explicitly say, we're going to change the child welfare system. We shouldn't do it this way. We shouldn't do it that way. And then they have meetings and they publish papers and they have a special thing in this organization. And then you look 10 years later, you go, wait a minute, did we really change? And you go, fuck no, we didn't change. <laughs> the same, exactly. Same yeah. shit. It's got yeah. a different name, right? <laughs> and it's so this is part of what we have to confront. We have to keep calling bullshit on these processes. Mm -hmm. But the dilemma is this, if you're in academics or if you're in any policy-making position, any position of influence, we are human beings. Yeah. We're so vulnerable to being, oh, I got invited to the White House. And so the White House, for example, one of the favorite mechanisms of power is to have a White House dinner and a White House conference. And 20 years ago, they had a White House conference on early childhood and brain development, only because Rob Reiner pushed the issue mm -hmm. and they invited people like me and Terry, you know, T. Barry Brazelton. And we talked about this and Bill Clinton shook our hands and patted us on the back and, oh, this is so important. And 20 years later, nothing has changed. Yeah. And mm -hmm. But it diffused the power. It diffused the, sort of the energy of that was being mobilized to change these systems. Now, I don't want to say nothing has changed because little things have changed. Mm. You know, in California, they passed some laws to fund early childhood programs, and there's a lot of really good things evolving. And, you know, there there are 
things that happen, but it's very slow in part because we are fighting this. To many people, it's an invisible set of systems. Um, But if you step outside the system, you go, this is highly visible. Mm -hmm. So when I stepped out of the conventional academic world, I'm like, wait a minute. No wonder this never works. It's the same damn people creating an echo chamber. True. They meet together, they pat each other on the back, they say they're addressing equity or trauma or attachment or whatever, and they publish a few things and they publish the same study 50 times, you know, (laughs) and rather than actually going, hey, why don't we actually go spend some time with the Cree women and see Mm -hmm. how they raise their children and learn a little bit about real attachment-based behaviors and how, you know, co-sleeping and how do they handle that Mm -hmm. and they would, God forbid, we learn anything from them. Um, we have to go tell them how to raise their kids. Yeah. Anyway, I, I could go on and on. I'm sorry. Well, I had experienced something similar. I was when I was working at the Mental Health Institute here in Montreal. We had a program that we were trying to get into some of the native, like the reserves here in Canada. And I had, for the first time in my life, jumped on a call with some of these people leading these communities, and they were like, "We don't want to be part of your stupid program." <laughs> right. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was a naive, like, you know, 20, 30 year old or whatever I was at that time. But I was like, why? We're going to help bring, you know, mental health, um, you know, resources to your community. And this should be an important, you know, thing for you. And they're like, no, it's bullshit because we've done this so many times. And all these projects come into our communities and tell us they're going to do something. And then five years pass and nothing has changed. And they've used our names on their papers and they've tried to, you know, do whatever it was and nothing has changed. And we still have high suicide rates and high, you know, levels of abuse within the community and nothing is changing. So I I completely get that. And I I think that's a a big part of the conversation we need to have. Um, I love how it went into this direction, but you know, it's part of the whole parent, (laughs) but it's part of this parenting conversation and the changes that we want to see. You know, I, I, one of the things I wanted to bring up, some, there were two things that marked me, um, during your talk at McGill, uh, you, you mentioned, you touched on this a little bit with the connectedness and I'll get to that in a second, but first was how you got into all of this. And I, I, I'd like to pass it on to Claudia because she also shared her experience and, I, I, I had something similar when I, I was working with kids and I was just playing with them. I was a neuroscientist that was trying to figure out how to create something outside of academia. So I, I started by this play-based work with kids and trying to help them with their cognitive skills. And I remember I was pregnant with my third child and this one child uh, that I was working with, I was told he's very dangerous. He has, you know, oppositional defiant disorder and he urinates on people and, you know, we're giving him as a client, you know, you're going to work with him, but we just want you to be safe. And I remember being really scared of this seven-year-old boy and and mm. going into this room and, you know, seeing all these toys and now are they going to be used, you know, against me and I, am I going to get hurt and I, I'm pregnant. And, and a month and a half, two months later, it came out during play that he was being physically abused within his home mm. by his father. And it just marked me like how he was on heavy medication because of the disorder that he had been diagnosed with and it wasn't that it was more than that somebody should have questioned what was going on in the home um so yeah. anyways i just wanted to share that because that that changed everything i did with curious neuron it wasn't about play anymore and just like t- talking to the child it was about talking to the parent now and showing them that the environment makes a difference on their child um but claudia yeah. would you like to share that story because you you had a story as well that i really appreciated yeah so um mm-hmm. just d- doing my phd work in suicide 
and depression and child abuse um, brings me into a lot of contact with the general public, as well as parents, and a lot of parents who are taking care of children who are adopted from very abusive homes. So particularly, I worked very closely with a mother who is bringing a case against the basically our child protective services here in Quebec, because her daughter, who was adopted from the U.S., was abused severely in multiple different realms of abuse from zero to five years old. And she is, you know, she's diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, uh, ADHD, all of these, you know, DSM-5 um, diagnoses. But nobody asked, like, what the abuse, like, changed in her brain. What, mm. what, what is really fundamentally different about this girl's brain. Mm. And so the mother is working really hard to bring neuroscience into her psychiatrist's office, like her her child's psychiatrist's office. And they're really against it. They they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear it. You know, like I I would send her studies, she would read them, she would talk about it with her child psychiatrist. Don't want to hear it. But why? Mm. Like why mm. I don't understand. Well. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I I just got off a call with a, a bunch of people in Cleveland who are social workers who had been in public systems, who left those systems and are now um, in a special project to, to be assigned to um, community recreation centers. So they're they're going to be they're kind of the mental health presence at a traditional community rec center. Mm-hmm. Where kids will go, and and in Cleveland, there's a lot of communities that lots of poverty, community violence, and so forth. So, the idea is that their understanding and experience in the area of trauma and uh, mental health will be a, a good support to what's going on recreationally there. Anyway, that matches a lot with the big project we have with Nike and some other people in sport. Um, but one of the things we talked about was it. Uh, the dilemma of the well-trained clinician who like, if you go into social work or you go into whatever our fields, you learn about things that we realize are very important to understanding people mm-hmm. and, and helping people. But the systems going back to the systems are structured in a way that forces people to practice differently than they're trained. Yeah. So there's a very, very few child psychiatrists that are trained to just see kids and prescribe, see kids diagnose and prescribe, but that's what most of them are doing. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in a situation where there is dissonance between what you think is best for kids and the way you're forced to practice, because you know what, you got to pay a mortgage, you got to, you know, you have to make a living, you don't see any other way to practice child psychiatry except the way I'm being told to practice by, you know. And I can tell you that most people that are trained in child psychiatry want to practice differently than they're forced to in these systems. Mm -hmm. So what happens is after a while, there's there's kind of, there's a few ways that you can survive an environment like that because it's a true moral injury. You either numb out and just kind of robotically do your work using dissociation as an adaptive mechanism or you sort of allow your 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 cognitive distortions to take place and you start to believe that 
I'm only doing evidence-based practice uh, and, and oh, there's tons of evidence. And there is no evidence that most of these medications work, by the way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's evidence to the contrary. I don't want to get into that. But that, so when they're presented with something that challenges their little sort of delusional bubble, yeah. <laughs> they don't want to see it. They really don't want to see it. And so what they'll do is they'll ignore it. And then if they can't ignore it, they'll attack it because they'll say, what's the evidence? That's bad evidence. And and the irony is there's no evidence that shows that what they're doing is prescribing five medications. But but that's what happens. People end up in, I don't want to call it brainwashing, but it's very similar cognitively to what happens to people that get into an inescapable, unavoidable cognitive trap. Mm -hmm. And they start to ha- they have to start believing that that w- the what I'm doing is the right way, or it would just drive them crazy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think is happening. I think that people tolerate bad practice in the beginning, and then over time they start to actually think that it's good practice. And and then when they're confronted with stuff that challenges it, they don't want to see it. Yeah, mm-hmm. they just don't want to see it, especially if it's presented by somebody who's not a physician. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm putting myself, I, you know, I'm placing myself in the shoes of parents that are listening right now. And if they themselves are in this position where they did experience childhood adversity and are noticing now that this is showing up in their emotion dysregulation with their child, and they might not have the means to get some help or get some therapy, what can they do at this point? Um, and this Perhaps we'll touch upon that point you mentioned during the McGill right. talk, which was the connectedness. But is yeah. what, what can they do? And if it is connectedness, how can we, like you said, in the society where we're really in silos, and we're, we're in our homes and we're right. not getting together like we used to do. Even I think about like my grandmother talking about like kids never coming in and everybody just hanging out outside and, and right. her kids going to people's houses and coming back later. I don't know, like even just that, like a couple of years ago. Um, but how do we how do we move forward with this? That's really such a good question. And I here's the message I want everybody to hear is that people get better without necessarily having conventional therapy. You can mm-hmm. get better. Um, and the key to getting better is almost always connected to or related to your ability to find people in your life who can be present and non-judgmental mm-hmm. and kind and under patient and understanding. And, and some people are very lucky to be able to create that and find that. Sometimes they find it in a community of faith. Sometimes they find that in by reconnecting to their culture, you know, mm-hmm. starting to go into powwows and starting to be part of that world and, and, and the relationships and the meals and the laughter and the dancing, those things will help you heal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is hard if you don't have a little coaching or don't have a little bit of help, right? Yeah. So I would, you know, I always encourage people to reach out a little bit. Um, even though there are not a lot of resources, you know, the, the mental health system in the U.S. and I know in Canada, it's really stretched. Yeah. You know, there's like long waiting lists. And yeah. a lot of times when you do get in, you know, you don't necessarily get somebody who's going to be perfect for you and that sort of True. thing. But mm-hmm. There are um, there are places where you can connect to people who may have similar experiences, and that's one of the positive things about web-based stuff. There are several 
kind of communities of survivors of, of either domestic violence or survivors of residential uh, school experience. There, there, there are communities out online that might be worth exploring as a start to, to make those connections. Um, and then I, I always really encourage people uh, to think about their own extended family. Who's who's healthy in your extended family? Was there an uncle? Was there is there a grandparent? It, it, you know, uh, are are some of these people present? In, in did was there a an old teacher? Did you have a coach? Did you know what whatever it is? If you find a community where you belong, whether it's, uh, you know, I'm going to do community theater or I'm going to do whatever it is, that's where the healing can, can start. And that, that's a really important thing. I, the, the here, part of the dilemma is that, and, and we all are in this, we're all in a rut. Everybody that I know, even the most mindful, whatever, Buddhist, whatever, they're in their mindfulness rut. We're all in ruts. Hmm. The inertia of doing what you have been doing is so powerful that if your world has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and that that's one of the first things that happens when you're a parent is your world starts to get smaller. Yeah, true. And and then the inertia of like being so tired at the end of the day that oh god, I'm not going to call this group, or I'm not going to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go to my book club, or I'm not going to go to exercise because you're so damn tired. Mm-hmm. But if you you've got to do it, you, you know. And it helps if you've got a partner, right? Find one person that's a friend or somebody who you can go start getting out of these ruts, and that will help a lot. But but a lot of people who feel who've had developmental trauma or other kinds of trauma and now are parenting, they're very uncomfortable and reluctant to reach out to other people. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so it sometimes it's tough. It's tough, but. I would encourage people to to be um, even tiny steps, little steps. You know, even if it's just volunteering mm-hmm. at a local uh, soup kitchen. It, it be, the reason I say that is that one of the things that I think many people who have been injured uh, developmentally they have a a certain kind of gift of empathy uh, that comes from knowing what it feels like to be marginalized or injured or misunderstood. And that when they can then go into an environment where that knowledge and their presence can help other people, I think it that's a healing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would encourage that. Find somebody who you can do something for you with, whatever you like to do, and then find something that you can do something for someone else. And uh, I think both of those things will be therapeutic. Mm. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's, at least it's something that parents can start applying today. And like you said, baby steps, small steps, if you have to, you don't have to be part of every community group tomorrow, but just at least try to get out and and connect with people. And and one really good way to do this is to find two or three other young parents and, and basically swap childcare, Mm. you know, just say, listen, we're going to have a, I don't have any money to pay for a babysitter, but listen, how about if one night a week I get to go out and you watch my kids and one night a week, you know, you get to go out and I'll watch your kids. And just even that tiny beginning of, of an opportunity to just even, you know, to, to connect with somebody around shared babysitting is, is a good step. 
because everybody wants to know that they're they're you know you are not alone you are in this together there mm-hmm. are lots of other parents that are struggling with this stuff that's actually our most popular uh <laughs> part of kirsner on it's called you are not alone uh on sundays parents get to post something on instagram uh, they fill in the blank. Am I the only one, you know, who blank? And then they'll put stuff, they'll add whatever they think they are alone, you know, in. and yeah, then they nice. realize 87% of parents are experiencing this or, you know, 75 are experiencing that. And then they realize, well, I am, I'm not alone. I, I, I am connected to all these people that are experiencing the same thing. And just that makes you feel different in that moment when you think you're the only one whose child yeah. doesn't want to go to bed at night. And then you realize, you know, 99% of us <laughs> are experiencing the same thing. Then exactly. you, it's different. You approach that situation differently. I, our conversation is coming close to an end, unfortunately. Um, but I, I am curious about the other side of that. Um, we spoke about the parent, but now I want to bring it to the child um, because I have been getting in the past three months a lot of messages from parents who said, who tell me that the environment within their home is either verbally aggressive or physically mm. aggressive um, as a result of, you know, having been home with their partner or the stress, right. you know, during the pandemic. And I'm thinking of the children now that are, that are in this environment. How can we or what sort of information can we give parents if their child is in this environment and now they're they're fearing, you know, the, their child's future and and the mm. impact on their development. Well, the the good here's the good the the, the most important thing is number one, uh, every parent is, has episodes where they do things that probably are not ideal for their kid. Every every parent. Um, and number two, um either repairing, reassuring, apologizing. You know, when you have a big fight and it's all crazy, it it's important and it's powerful and it helps your child if you talk with them. Mm-hmm. Say, listen, you know, but the key is kind of do it when you're calmer and reassure the child that, listen, this stuff happens, everybody gets upset, uh, you're safe. We both love you. Just give them whatever message you want to give them. And it doesn't have to go on and on and on. Just do that. And the, 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 the bottom line though, is that the brain is malleable. And, and if your child lives through challenging times, uh, there will be opportunities for those challenging times to be buffered by having, uh, different kinds of predictable, controllable, positive experiences. And um, and again, just reassure people that, listen, every single person on this planet grows up with some crap. I mean, it just happens. Mm-hmm. You cannot get through life unscathed. And um, it's just kind of how you, how you handle it, how you counterbalance these things. And and don't underestimate the power of repair. Mm-hmm. Communication and relationship is all about rupture and repair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when there is a rupture, just repair it. And um, I think that that can go a long ways towards creating a pattern of stress activation that's more predictable, more controllable, that, that ultimately leads to resilience as opposed to vulnerability. So one of the questions I actually wanted to you know get an answer to is how can we help build resilience? in our children. So in the, in your books, you mentioned a lot of um, moderate predictable stress. What form can that take within a household? 
I'm glad you asked that, Claudia. Fortunately, for for most uh, of us, the traditional educational environment has lots of controllable and moderate stressors. Mm -hmm. And there is predictability, you know, you know, when you're going to go and, you know, you know, if you have a test every Friday in math, you know, that that's going to happen. So, and the controllable part is, you know, I'm going to do better on, it's going to be less stressful if I actually study, you know? Mm -hmm. So those things can help create resilience, but so can being uh, in the band and so can being in sport and so can being in any kind of other school-based activity, drama or, or whatever you like to do. These things create challenges, but they're moderate challenges. And they're usually in a relational environment where you're part of a community. You know, you're part of a team. You're part of a, you know, you're part of the the, the trumpets. And, you know, you're part of, you know, the theater group. And that allows opportunities for forming relational connections that help buffer some of these challenges. Mm-hmm. So kids that have the benefit of after-school activities uh, are going to have more opportunities to build resilience. And I think that that's something that, that um, parents can always um, support. Now, they're not, I mean, there are times when they're not all, always ideal. You know, you might not have a great coach and you can have a bad experience. But by and large, it, it, these can be pretty good experiences. The other thing is that, you know, normal development is filled with, um, Leaving your comfort zone, which activates your stress response, mm-hmm. trying something new, uh, and then going back to, into your comfort zone and being reassured. So anything that the parent does to to with the child, uh, like I'm going to teach you how to fish, I'm going to teach you how to hunt, I'm going to teach you how to track, I'm going to teach you how to knit, I'm going to teach you how to you know work on the car. Anything that you have your child kind of do with you has a lot of opportunities for you to provide sort of relationally supported uh, opportunities for them to leave their comfort zone, try something new in under your guidance, right? No, 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 no. Turn it to the right. Turn it to the right. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, t- turn it to the right. Okay, you got it. <laughs> Little things like that. Have them shadow you when you cook. Have them shadow you when you do all any work around the house. And it's so funny because in the beginning, right, that, you know, the little, you know, my son, oh, yeah, I'll come on. I want to, I want to do the lawnmower. I want to do the lawnmower. And then after he learns how to do it, it's like, oh, God, I, he, we get the lawnmower out. He disappear. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's no longer a, a, a resilience building experience, Dad. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that you want to do, right? Mm. Include your kids in in all these little things that you do, even if it's stuff like shopping or going to pick up your laundry or, you know, go in and buy me a, you know, what, go go buy this and go get the change, you know, mm-hmm. and you can be over there watching them and they can get it. Mm-hmm. Say thank you. All these little things, little predictable things where you give them an opportunity to leave their comfort zone and that helps build resilience. Amazing. That just gave me a flashback of this past summer, my five and seven year old asked, can we ride our bicycle like three, four houses down? They had never left like just our little driveway or or space without having us beside them. And I'll never forget the image of them being at the fourth house and turning around and high fiving each other that they're so far away from the house. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) they 
were just so they were in their their happy you know space of like mommy and daddy are so far <laughs> but it was really cute to see that they want to try to push those boundaries and to test exactly. them out and but feel safe within that exactly and, yeah and that's and that's kind of what development's all about right mm-hmm. you know that little by little they you know they push the their their comfort zone mm-hmm. and someday they're going to wave to you when they go off to europe yeah and <laughs> You know, they're going to say, see ya. Yeah. And that'll be harder you, for me. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the thing. It's going to be definitely yeah. harder for parents. Um, I, I guess to close this conversation, what is it that you wish all new parents would know from your own research and work um, that isn't being said enough? Well, I think the, I, I really, I, I always want young parents to realize how important they are, you know, how important their presence is. And, and more than anything, it, it's to, to recognize that there's power in just being with your child. Yes. Just being present okay. with your child and enjoying, um, those moments. You know, you don't have to push them to do this or to the, to do that. Just kind of luxuriate in the moment. Mm. And it's those moments of connection that are in the end going to be create this glue and a sense of safety that will allow your child to feel good leaving, you know, this comfort zone, you know? So when your boys sort of high-fived and uh, <laughs> got to the edge of the, yeah. the known universe, um, they did that because you'd instilled in them a sense of, of safety. Mm. And uh, that's such an important thing mm. that your presence and uh, your attention is incredibly important in building changes the biology of their brain and it Mm. it 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 front loads them and gives them kind of a neurobiological inoculation Mm. so that they can handle stressors later on in life i think that's great advice yeah and i love the idea of just being present it's something so small and simple in theory but it's actually so difficult to do these days with you know our phones and emails exactly. going off all the time and thinking about where we have to be at 6 p.m like just being present <laughs> it, i feel like yeah. just w- even with your partner or with your kids like i feel mm. like it's just one of the most important things that we can do it it, it is important and it's it, as you pointed out claudia it's one of the hardest things to yeah, do it is mm. in our modern world that's so filled with distractors right mm. And we're human beings are very visually biased creatures. And so when we have these little screens on and this on and that on, it's so easy to just get pulled out of an interaction and look at your text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that moment, that that's a little rupture that you got to repair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that that again, so to sort of make it easier for you to be present, one of the things that you do want to do is is minimize screen presence when you're having these little moments. Mm-hmm. Because there aren't yeah. many, especially with the newborn. My brother-in-law just had a child yeah. and they sleep a lot, right? And I told them whenever your your baby's awake, just be present in those moments. And yeah. I think many new parents will often send me messages asking like, what toys should I buy? Or should I buy these <laughs> high contrast cards? I don't know. I didn't, yeah. I didn't have those. But just, in the end, it's not about yeah. the toys. It's you, no. the parent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You are the best toy your child could ever get. Mm. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to chat with Claudia and I. My pleasure. Um, My pleasure. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. And I thank hope you. that in the next 15 years, we can see a lot more of those little changes <laughs> within our systems. We will. We will. You know, listen, I, I, first of all, the fact that you're even doing this, you know, the curious neuron is an example of positive change, you know, yeah. in the right direction. It's happening. It thank just, you. 
we what we have we have to recognize that that we're involved in a transgenerational problem solving process, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know that we have the, these are big issues that we're dealing with, and you know it takes a while to solve some of these things to change these. And we're so used mm-hmm. to immediate fixing of all our problems right. that yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's 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 nice to put in place just the idea of transgenerational change yeah it's like we can't just look at our moment but our parents are our grandchildren exactly and if we if we do a good job and we change the direction of positive change even two or three degrees in the right direction you know in a couple generations that's 25 degrees and that that's a big change so thank you keep pushing don't give up thank you Claudia, are you on as much of a high as I am right now? I am. We just had her, right? I mean, to me, that was like just the highlight of my life. I mean, there's my kids' births <laughs> and my wedding and all that, but then there's Dr. Bruce Perry. Yeah, that was very cool. I'll never forget oh. this moment. <laughs> yeah. He was so down to earth and we were lucky enough to have a conversation with him before and after the recording as well. And, you know, I, maybe we, sh- we can like summarize a little bit about that conversation that we had with him. So if you're a parent and listening to this and, you know, just skip to the end, like this is a good part to, to listen to. And I think that there were a few things that marked me, you know, there's a question that came in from, from a mom and she was asking me, she wanted to ask him, you know, how to repair or rever- or reverse the trauma caused um, to her infant due to her postpartum depression, that she suffered a lot from this. And she felt that she wasn't being a good mom and wasn't connected to her child. And, you know, first, I think I would approach that with the whole community and connection part, right? Like, mm-hmm. she, hopefully, this person listening and, and anybody else who's listening, it, it's not your fault if you have postpartum depression or anxiety. And and I, yes, we hear a lot about the research, including from Kirsten Neuron, that that could impact, like, the relationship or the attachment with your child because you might be a bit more disconnected. But once you take care of yourself and you're okay, take, you know, do it from either therapy or community. He spoke about that connected part and and being part of a community somehow, whether it's religious or spiritual or cultural or whatever it is, uh, neighbors and getting together with friends and people. Um, so take care of yourself first. But also I think like for me that that connects with the whole rupture and repair yeah. um, that he spoke of. Yeah. So I think as long as you, you know, pay attention and that like already this mom is asking the question. So she's already like yeah. very vigilant about, you know, how her attachment to her child's going to be or how, you know, her child's going to develop in this world. So I think already that's a great, yeah. you know, um prospect mm-hmm. for the child in general being in this amazing home. And mm-hmm. I think it's just important to realize that like Dr. Bruce Perry said, it's like you can rupture something. So for example, not be so present in the beginning stages of your child's life and just repair that. You know, he mentioned like just being present with your kid, taking your kid to the grocery store with you and asking them to pick something off the shelf. Like mm-hmm. these are moments of mm-hmm. connection that can repair any sort of disattachment that you might have with your child. Mm. And I think it comes back to a question that is often asked where it's, they say like, okay, stress is, is is not good for a child, not in all cases, as we had this conversation with him. But then what's the range? Like what what is bad and how bad is it and how often does it have to happen? You know, when it comes to um, sleep training, for example, parents will often ask me, is sleep training bad or good? Is it damaging my child? Are they... You know, is, is this something that's going to impact them until they're adults? But from what he said, there's even if a child experiences something more traumatic, 
there are ways to fix it and to help that child through connectedness and through being part of that community. So it's back to that rupture, you know, there's something that happened to you as a child, then repair, work on the repair part. And we don't have to worry about such little things, you know, like sometimes I'll get emails from a mom who says, I had to go to the bathroom and my, my child cried for like 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever it was. And they feel guilty. And we do. I, I experienced it myself too with my first child. It's like, you never want to disconnect yourself. But now I think from what I learned from him is those little moments don't matter. There's a rupture, repair, and that's okay. Show your child that they're still safe and there's security in that environment. Yeah. And a big point that he brought up too is like, if something bad does happen, like for example, you're fighting in front of your kid or you had to, you know, go to the bathroom while they're crying. You just come back and say, oh, sorry, I had to go to the washroom and mom Mm -hmm. needed to take care of herself. You know, like that's important Mm -hmm. too. What can I help you with now? You know, like you're able to have this dialogue with your child. Yeah. Maybe they're not going to understand every word you're saying if they're a two-year-old, but just, you know, as they age, they're going to be more accustomed to this back and forth dialogue of, okay, something ruptured. How do we repair it together? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And your communication, your body language, your tone is very different, right? When you're calmer and you're, so even if you just show them like, I'm calm now, everything's okay. You're safe. I'm safe. It's fine just to have those conversations. Yep. Um, it's interesting. We were, before we were discussing like the three points and that's what stood out to us, you know, that community connection part, um, that rupture and repair, but also that it's not like, it's, it's not the parents fault. We, we put so much pressure on ourselves and I, I, to me, it just, I hope parents that are listening and all of you listening realize that like we're not, we cannot control every single aspect of our child's life, but we can be present as much as we can when we can with them. Um, And and that does help nurture that resilient part too, that resilience part. Yeah, absolutely. I Mm. think um, it's a systemic problem that we have uh, Mm. in a sense that our society does not support new families. Our society does not provide enough you know, you know, universal basic income. There are so many studies that show, you know, you give every person an amount of money. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of money either. And it cuts costs on healthcare, it cuts costs on mental health care, it cuts costs on basically any negative aspect that we have in society. Like there's studies on this, and like Dr. Perry was saying, is like it's systemic change over hmm. generations. So it's not, I, I want to reiterate what you said. It's not a parent's fault if they can't handle everything that's coming their way. Like there's just so many things we yeah. need to balance as humans. And then you have a life of a child on your hands as well. It's, it's, mm-hmm. he said, everyone's burnt out. It's something we yeah. know and we're trying yeah. to change it, but it's a systemic problem. Mm-hmm be an advocate not just for your child so if they're in the system and at school and you know that it's a dysregulation issue and you know that they need a bit more support when it comes to their emotions just be the advocate for them you know the research you're following Kirstner on and you've heard all the studies that we share and, and we'll share some in the notes as well for you to have but Dr. Perry's work, his books, everything just reminds us that we do have to think about our system, even as our our nervous system, even as parents, you know, if you've been yelling a lot, it's not that there's something wrong with you. I don't want you to fall into this guilt sort of cycle. 
but just start thinking about where that's coming from. Why is that happening? And, and that's something I had learned. I have this super hypersensitive, and actually we didn't talk to him about that, but this hypersensitive stress system where, you know, you drop a pencil, I jump, but it came from now, I understand. It came from how I was raised and the anxiety that was in the environment from a very young age. And I brought that on and I react very differently than, let's say, my partner, my husband. Um, but now we understand that it's just because of our upbringing and it's it's okay. It doesn't mean that we're damaged for life, but understanding your own system really helps you when you're parenting because then you could I know now for myself, I need to take deep breaths mm -hmm. and before reacting to my child. And that's why I share this kind of research, you know, like it, we have to understand our nervous system. Yeah. And Dr. Perry actually brought it up, right? Is uh, you have to regulate yourself before you can regulate your kid. And it just yeah. made me think of Wonder Grade. I was like, wow, we have something yeah, for this. It's true. <laughs> yes. I was like, there's I something that exists already. <laughs> Exactly. But, and that's why, you know, I, of, I often talk with Christy, I actually want to bring her on the podcast, but we, we have all these systems that talk about like mindfulness and for kids and here are some books for kids and stuff, some stuffed animals that will calm them down. But nobody says you as a parent have a role in this, a really, really big role. So what we're doing is we're putting all these, again, band-aids on, on uh, a child who's dysregulated. And we're saying just breathe and everything will be fine. But there's yeah. so much more to that. And if the parent is in the home and the environment and they're dysregulated, but they're trying to teach their child to regulate themselves, it's 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 going again. It's headbutting, you know, of trying to change things. So yeah. we do. It's hard. It's so hard as a parent. We have enough on our hands. And then you hear this thing of like, work on yourself. It's like, well, uh, I don't want to because I'm tired. And yeah. But it's little baby steps. I had started with journaling and noticing what I responded to and how I responded to certain things and just that was an eye-opener it's like oh okay um i'm sensitive to and i think i've spoken about this before but i'm sensitive to certain noises or noise by 4 or 5 p.m my system gets dysregulated very easily with the noise or like lots of hugging by the end of the day i'm like oh okay i need my space and and just being aware of that changes how i'm responding so yeah. i think we we do need to keep having this conversation and be an advocate for your child and for yourself if you need a break Find a way to get a break. Don't let anyone lead you to believe that it's selfish. Yeah, and and I'm absolutely. so glad we had that discussion with him. Yeah, there's no shame mm -hmm. in taking time for yourself and regulating yourself, and like that's almost more important than trying to figure out how to regulate your kid. If you're not regulated, it is you can't regulate yeah. your kid. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious before we we end this. This was a longer episode, but it was just too good. I I loved this conversation so much. I'm literally I don't think I'll sleep tonight. <laughs> but the you know I'm curious with your own research and what we learned from him. And you you've read his books and his research like I have. What do you use from his work and research in your own research? Or is there anything that like has informed you or helped you do or think about something differently? Yeah. So. Um I work on postmortem human brain, so I can't take it, you know, word for word what he's saying yeah. and use it in my own research. But one thing I find that his work specifically has really helped me with is when I go present my research and I and the topic of child abuse is, you know, out there in the public, I always get people that come and say, like, am I like too late? Like, can I still fix myself? I experienced mm -hmm. this as a child. You know, they tell me their their heartaches mm -hmm. and and their their trauma from being a child. Mm. And they say, how can, what, what do I do? Like I've tried antidepressants. They're not working. I've tried this treatment, that treatment. It's not working. My therapist doesn't believe me that it's, you know, not ADHD or something like that. Mm. How do I deal with this? And I'm like, honestly, I'm not, I'm not able to answer your question specifically, but I really 
suggest you look into Dr. Bruce Perry's work and the neurosequential model, which we didn't touch too much on um, today, but it basically is just going back to the basics. Like that layered cake that he was talking about is trying to figure out what's going on in the bottom layer in the brainstem, in the regulatory system of our body, what's going on there and how can we then fix that and recuperate the, the damage and then move on to higher functioning, like, you know, sitting in class and listening. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how his work has impacted mine is just being able to communicate with the general public, honestly, and people who share their stories. Cause he's broken it down. I know he said scientists or neuroscientists wouldn't like his later cake. uh, uh, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But I, I actually, exactly. Because I think we always have to take complex, you know, neuroscientific topics and try to find a way that it makes sense to everyone. And that's a perfect example. I was looking at that image last night of his model and it just makes sense. If we look at her child who's dysregulated, screaming and crying, and we're like, this doesn't make sense. Or look, you asked for the red cup and now you're crying or, or trying to reason with them in that moment, there's no point. So if we just realize that there's like this three layered system and that we have to get to their like sensory system or just trying to regulate them at the core. And then that goes to the emotion part of the brain and that goes to the cortex and rational thinking. Then we could just visualize or we, we see our child very differently. Now we understand why they're not listening to us because they can't reason or yeah. ration in that moment. It's just to them, they're emotional and they're upset and dysregulated and that's it. It makes sense to their system. Yeah. Um, but really, really being aware of all that, I think, is just... I, I, all new parents have to know this. Yeah. I'm so happy we had this yeah. conversation. Oh, Thanks for thank having you. me. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> yes. Thank you for joining me and and thank you to everyone who's listening. Please take a moment. You have to now. You have no choice but to rate the Curious Neuron podcast <laughs> because this was an amazing uh, episode. Um, please rate it and leave a review. And don't forget to send me an email at info at curiousneuron.com. Follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. We're also on Facebook with the same um, handle. And you can now follow us on YouTube. This video, if you're listening on the podcast, either on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music, you can watch this video on um, YouTube as well. And I think that's all. I think you can also visit the website, kirsteron.com, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.